The Christian life is a bit like going to the dentist. If we must rely on God, then fine. But if not, then no way. I have an amazing dentist. Uh, some of you guys go to the same dentist. We grew up together. His character is solid. We've been on mission trips together. He has a heart for the gospel, so he, goes, he himself goes on these medical mission trips regularly, and he doesn't only bring medicine and dental expertise onto the mission field to people who can't afford it, um, but he brings the gospel. And he has such a heart for the gospel that he understands that when he does work on my head, he's not only helping me, but he's helping the church. And so he gives me a very steep discount, praise God. But not only is his character solid, but his ability as a dentist, in my opinion, is amazing. He's been to this school, and then he went on to that school. He specialized on this, and he does research on that. And the brother is thorough, a very thorough, the most thorough dentist I have ever been to. And honestly, he is the, the most knowledgeable dentist I have ever been to. Now, given his knowledge... Given his wisdom, his expertise, his experience, given his love for me as an individual and his love for God, wouldn't I be a fool to see his dentist chair as if I must then fine, and if not, then no way? Wouldn't I be a fool to delay the work that he has offered me? I mean, sure, he may tell me that he has to drill into my face, give me shots in the gums, and maybe even remove a tooth, but isn't it wise to submit myself to my dentist, right? Just think about it. Some of you guys haven't been to the dentist in like five years and, and you can't afford it. Maybe even you have health insurance, but still you delay. Our passage today, <laughs> transition here, our passage today calls us to submit ourselves, to humble ourselves before God, particularly in the suffering of life because he cares for us. It's not a last-ditch effort as if, you know, everything else has failed as you've tried to live for God or, sorry, live as if you were God, do whatever you want to, but it's because he says that he is a good God and he cares and loves his people. So I invite you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to 14. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to 14. It can be found on page 1016 if you're using one of those black Bibles right there in front of you, 1016. Today we finish up our series through the book of 1 Peter. We're simply walking through Scripture. We go to the Old Testament, now we're in the New Testament. And next week we go back to the Old Testament, Psalms, then we continue in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at 1 Samuel. But today we finish up in 1 Peter. We spent 13 weeks in the book. Uh, this is a letter written by the Apostle Peter to Christians. If you look there in chapter 1, you know, this is a real letter written by a real man. So uh, here we have a real salutation. He says there in verse 1, that he is writing to the elect exiles, that is, the scattered Christians, in the dispersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So this is modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to all these Christians who are suffering for the faith. He himself is in the center of the Roman Empire. If you go look over to chapter 5, verses 12 to 14, you'll see there. Peter himself is writing from the center of the Roman Empire in the city of Rome. So if you think of suffering, right, if suffering is going to happen, this is ground zero of suffering. And you can tell that he's writing there with a man named Silvanus. Silvanus is a man who took the letter to the Christians. He says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. What has he written? 
exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. He says there, stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. He says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. But my main point here is if you look there in 13, she who is at Babylon. To, uh, there's another uh, exa- There are other examples in Scripture where uh, churches are referred to as the lady and her sister in Second John. Babylon at this point in time in the early 60s is in ruins. Uh, so he's using Babylon as a symbol for those who oppose God. So think Babylon in the Old Testament. There are those who opposed God, who worshipped idols, who rejected the one true God. And here he's using it again symbolically, but referring to Rome, most people think, most scholars think. Uh, but he's writing once again to suffering Christians, and he addresses this regularly in the letter. Let's just review some of the suffering going on, especially as we finish up the book. If you turn to 1, 6, and 7, verses 1, 6, and 7, he says there, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you were to just read the rest of the letter, you know that they are some possibly are being beaten for their faith in chapter 2. They're definitely being slandered for the faith. And some of you guys might understand this dynamic. You know, if you are, if you are not a Christian, if you, you become a Christian later on in life, and then you start uh, saying, oh, you know what, I don't really want to do the things that you guys do. Sometimes, you know, family members and friends, they might even accuse you of not being loyal, not being faithful, of even abandoning them. So in the midst of that suffering, if you've ever gone through suffering, whether it be for the faith or anything, you know that that can rock your faith, which is why Peter encourages them to stand firm in the faith, as we just read in chapter 5 in the last few verses there. He says, this is the true grace. Believe, continue believing in the true grace. And there he's just talking about everything that he's mentioned in the letter. That is salvation in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, adoption, living in a new kingdom, even embracing God's laws to the praise of his glorious grace. He says, stand firm in that. Christ will return. The return of Jesus is spoken of regularly here. So here they're going through trials and Peter encourages them to continue to stand fast. What's interesting is that as history shows over the next few years here, if this is the early 60s, uh, persecution will ramp up under Nero. Nero in 64 AD would go on to blame Christians, blame that is you all, for a devastating fire that he himself set. People think that he set this fire, history shows us, and as a scapegoat, he lays the blame on the Christians, and then he pursues to go on and brutally persecute them, murdering many, really just for entertainment almost. But while major persecution hasn't broken out yet, these Christians were nevertheless experiencing, without doubt, a very taste, strong taste of difficulty. Now again, you guys might not be going through persecution for the faith, but you too go through difficulties, don't you? And you know when that dark cloud of suffering blurs your vision, daily vision, and makes your soul limp, right? You know what this is like. And if so, then then First Peter is for you. Because the same truths that address suffering for the faith also address just general suffering. And here, once again, we come to the conclusion of the letter. And the first thing that Peter holds out to suffering Christians, as he concludes here, is that he reminds them that with God, 
there is always comfort. With God, there is always comfort. If you're taking notes, that's point number one. With God, there is always comfort. Look at six and seven. I'll go ahead and read that. He says there, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Of course, uh, these verses here are driven by a humble yourselves. It's a command. It's an imperative. Humble yourselves, therefore. And you see why he's saying therefore. Uh, it means that this is an inference of the previous verses. So if you look there, look at verse five. We'll go ahead and start there. You see this theme of humility being brought up. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what he's doing there, he's, he's, he once again is looking at the relationships within the church. He already addressed the elders as they shepherd the church, which we looked at last week. Then he turns to the younger, I think the younger in age, right? If the younger in age, you know, oftentimes they have more vigor. And if you're being persecuted, then oftentimes the younger, how do they want to respond? They want to respond in kind. So maybe, maybe they are wanting to respond in kind with hostility towards those who have hostilities against them. And he says, uh, look, be subject to your elders. They walk the path of Jesus Christ. You walk the path of Jesus Christ. And then he expands it to all. He says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. The reason is for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Now, this might sound like uh, a bit of a warning to the church. You guys clothe yourselves with humility. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. But here I think it's more meant not to be a warning, but meant to actually bring unity uh, in the Christian church, because you've got to remember that outside of the Christian church, they are the proud who are rejecting Jesus Christ, the creator and maker. They're rejecting God. And, and uh, really, it just points back to look over to 312, 312. You always want to be opening the Bible and looking to see uh, if what I'm saying is true, because we want to root everything we do here in the word. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And really, I think you should understand those categories as in humility, those who fear God and pride, those who do not. So here he's saying, look, this is what I want the church to be uh, marked by, marked by loving kindness, marked by not retaliation, but walking the path of suffering, marked by humility, he says here, submission. And the reason, once again, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So on the subject of humility within the church, he then turns towards the vertical relationship between the church and God, right? So he's done now doing the horizontal. Now he turns to the vertical, the church and God. And of course, the perfect place to point these limping Christians to is comfort in the hands of God. Comfort in the hands of God. Given God gives grace to the humble, therefore humble yourselves, humble yourselves. Trials and suffering definitely humble us, don't they? You lose sometimes what you have worked for. You see, for example, your retirement portfolio tank. Your investment goes belly up. You see your own body breaking down. Our sufferings humble us. And it can be so hard to come face to face with the fact that we are so limited not sovereign that we are in fact not god and oftentimes this is exactly what god himself wants to teach us that you are not god let god be god he says 
But sometimes we fight against this reality, don't we? We, we squirm underneath this reality, and, and we can see it in our suffering. So when you've suffered, I mean, don't you want to claw your way out from suffering? Don't you want to throw all of your weight into escaping the suffering? And you say, preach to yourself, this will not happen to me. I will not be taken over by this. Or if you aren't so proud, maybe you say in fear, waking up at 2 or 3 a.m. needing to answer emails, I will not be overtaken by this. And of course, you guys know this produces anxiety. Physically, your body, as you are proud, wanting to be God, your body shows signs that you cannot do this. You have anxiety, you worry, you have distress, and even in some extreme cases, medical professionals will label things like obsessive compulsive disorder. I mean, that really, the heart of that is anxiety. Panic attacks. We could go on. The good news, though, is that for anxious souls, this passage offers you a way out from the distress and torture of being humbled by circumstances. This passage offers you a way out from the distress and torture of being humbled by circumstances. So what is the answer here? It is humble yourselves. That's what he says there. Humble yourselves. Do it to yourself, not to circumstances or fate, but to God who is over those very circumstances. Because, of course, God in his goodness and faithfulness is using those circumstances in this sinful and fallen world to bring about your purification, your holiness and your Christ likeness. If you recall there in 417, 417, he says, therefore, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, keep in mind, it's not judgment to condemnation. When we're covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his blood is paid for our sins. God's wrath is removed. He is satisfied. This is judgment of purification of holiness, difficulty. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So we have to keep in mind, just as we already read in 1, 6, and 7, right, that this testing is to result in the praise and honor and glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's to result in his glory and our good as we participate in the glory that he himself has reserved and preserved for us. And so we got to remember these types of things, the very reason why there are trials, just as James himself talks about. But today we're reminded that there is comfort to be found even when we go through suffering. Okay, so why is it that we should uh, take great confidence in in comfort in Jesus Christ? Uh, Well, first, it's because God is powerful, because God is powerful. Notice where comfort is found. It is found under, there in that verse, in in verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. This phrase, friends, comes right out of the Exodus, as does many other phrases that Peter quotes in the book of First Peter. Um, but you know what God does with his mighty hand in the book of Exodus? The sovereign Lord who created all things exercises his sovereignty over Egypt and Pharaoh who want to kill all of the Hebrews and who oppose God, right? Remember that Pharaoh himself was set up as a deity. He received worship from the people, and there was a pantheon of gods. And this guy, you know, in the book of Exodus, he's like, well, who is this God? Why should I even listen to you? And whatever he says, I'm not going to listen to him. And so God exercises his lordship over those who oppose him. So that is judgment for those who oppose him, but then he works deliverance for those who love him. Judgment for those who oppose him and deliverance for those who love him. Do you know what Pharaoh's, uh, what Pharaoh was guilty of? Listen to Exodus 10.3 where God indicts Pharaoh through Moses and says this. How long 
will you refuse to humble yourselves before me? It's interesting, you know, Peter, he's thinking about the exodus throughout the book of First Peter. And now he's telling us, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I think he's thinking about Pharaoh right here. Exodus 10, verse 3. How long will you refuse to humble yourselves before me? So obvious parallels between uh, the, the Hebrew people under uh, Pharaoh and the Christians under Nero. Just as the Old Testament Israel was, just as Old Testament Israel were, were to humble themselves and trust in the Lord. So the New Testament, God's spiritual Israel was to as well. So the Israelites could, uh, the, 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 the Christians here could look back at the Hebrews in the book of Exodus and see that they humbled themselves and that God worked his mighty hand uh, for them, delivering them out of Egypt. But of course, God's mighty hand was not only on display in the physical Exodus of Old Testament, it was on display in the spiritual Exodus through Jesus Christ, right? They could look back not only to Exodus that took place so long ago, but the spiritual Exodus through Jesus Christ, right? So just look at Jesus and you see this wonderful example of God's mighty hand exalting the humble. This is something that Jesus preached in Matthew verse, uh, chapter 20. Um, and then this is the, the pattern that he lived, humiliation and then exaltation. If you look at verses 6 and 7, right, you can't help but think that Peter had the Garden of Gethsemane in mind. If you don't know that story, it's where the disciples, Peter being one of them, and Jesus, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, there they watch Christ humble himself under God's mighty hand. This is before his crucifixion. Where he casts all of his cares, that's what the language says here, casts all of his cares to God, knowing full well that at the appropriate time, God would indeed wield all of his power to raise Christ from the dead and exalt him to his right hand. His mighty hand would work this power in Jesus Christ. So these Christians, even though they were experiencing a hailstorm of accusations, of slander, and maybe even fists, they're encouraged to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. Paul says in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Christians, do you trust in this power? I think typically people are going to say yes. Typically people say yes, but what we don't trust is God's timing in exercising his power. Oftentimes we want the almighty God to exercise all of his power now to bring recompense and justice for once for all, judgment on those who oppose you and deliverance for the Christian. But, you know, imagine, just imagine if he brought his mighty hand of justice and salvation upon the earth now. And what would happen to your relatives who oppose Christ? What would happen to your friend who is newly interested in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Friend, couldn't it be that God in his sovereign providence is planning to use your suffering for the gospel's sake? Or your suffering in general for the gospel's sake in order to testify to your family and friends that he above all else is worth glorying in? Psalm 73 verse 26 says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Friends, maybe 
God has it that you would actually walk the path of Jesus Christ, where indeed your flesh and your heart would fail, but all of your friends would see so clearly that God is your strength, not your health, not your flesh, not your job, not your money, not your relationships, but God is your heart and your portion forever. If it is possible, if that is possible. And therefore, we ought to ask, for the sake of Christ and His glory, whether or not you, friend, are able to sacrifice your temporal glory so others might come to know His eternal glory. If it is possible that God would have you walk the same footsteps of Jesus Christ in suffering, then we got to ask, are we able to sacrifice our own temporal glory so that other people would come to know His eternal glory and be saved? That's what seems to be going on here in, in a number of different places here where God, where, where God through His Word tells Christians to continue enduring unjust suffering. And friends, I know that some of you guys are going through that right now, slandered right now. Friends, we need to have the mindset of God where He desires that sinners would come to be saved. Imagine when you were not a Christian, when you were rejecting God. What would have happened if God would have brought his judging righteousness upon the world? You, you, you too would not have the chance to be saved. It's so encouraging that this is, is exactly what Jesus did. Sacrifice temporal glory so that others, so that we would know eternal glory. He sacrificed his heavenly glory as he freely left his throne and he gave up all his glory and honor and the position of power that he alone rightly deserved in order to secure us a glory that we did not deserve for the love of sinners for the love of sinners all of this he endured the suffering he trusted in god's mighty hand once again to raise him from the dead and sustain him and to build the church on his shed blood that's the pattern of the christian life the pattern of the christian life is cruciform for the sake of others just like Jesus Christ. I know this can be daunting to humble ourselves, to surrender power to God. But this command to humble yourself, friends, is also a wonderful opportunity and invitation to trust Him who knows how to wield power. And He promises that He will do it just in His timing. So there is comfort knowing that He is powerful Another reason why there is comfort for the Christian is because God cares, because God cares. First, we looked at because God is powerful. Now we look at the comfort because God cares. Why are we to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? The passage says because he cares for you, because God cares for you. Now, this is a rebuke to those who conceive all they want to about God and they think of him as distant. Clearly, Peter does not think that God is distant. God cares for you. And Peter knew this tender care. Peter himself knew this tender care. You remember the incident when Jesus calms the storm? It can be found in Mark chapter 4. It can be found in Matthew, but if you want, you can look at Mark chapter 4. There are disciples in the boat, and a storm arises, and they they are frantically trying to save themselves. And so they go to Jesus, who is sleeping, and they say, they, right, they think they're going to die. And so they wake up Jesus, and they accuse him. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It's interesting there. It should be noted that they're calling him a teacher as opposed to Lord, as opposed to God, as opposed to Savior. Here it's just rabbi, his teacher. I believe it's rabbi. So this incident here, it combines, it's interesting, it combines the omnipotence of Jesus Christ and his love for his people. 
His omnipotence of Christ is actually wielded for his people. And Christ exercises his power. He calms the storm. And as he calms the storm, his disciples' fears are driven away. They are replaced by comfort and confidence. And he rebukes them. He says, do you still not have faith? And did you notice what Christians are to do because God cares for them? In 1 Peter chapter 5, it says that they are to cast all their cares on him. Cast all their cares on him. This here is the manner in which they are to humble themselves before the Almighty God. So here, the the logic is so tight in this passage. He says, humble yourselves, how? By casting all your anxieties on him. Look there, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. There's a location under the mighty hand of God. And at the proper time, he may exalt you. How are, are they to do that? Verse seven, casting, by casting all your anxieties on him. The reason is because he cares for us. Church, do you believe that God cares for you in the midst of your suffering? It's a bit obvious, but, you know, if you doubt that God cares for you, you are not going to humble yourselves to him. You're not going to be going to him, casting all of your cares upon him. I mean, if God is someone to be doubted, someone to be mistrusted, you're not going to run to him to bear your burdens. Instead, you're going to carry them on your own backs, unfortunately. What a horrible, horrible Christian life that would be if God were not who he says he is. But instead, he were weak. He was weak. He is uncaring. You know, sadly, what I think gets so many Christians to doubt God's care for them is actual suffering. It's the experience of suffering, whether it be sin, suffering for the faith, whether it be sickness, whether it be death. Because because of suffering, Christians then go on to judge God to be unloving. I've done this in my own life. Maybe you yourself have questioned, questioned God because of these things. But according to the Bible, it is clear That sin, sickness, death, war, sexual immorality, murder, all sin came into the world because of man. Because of of man's sin. Man sinned in the beginning. They rebelled against God. You know, God created man to be a perfect relationship with him. They basically, uh, when God drew near, they basically uh, cursed God and said, well, I'm going to set up my own kingdom and live according to my own laws. And because of that, man is going to be held accountable because of their sin. To then go on and judge God to be unloving because we sinned is wrong. To go on to judge God to be unloving because we ourselves sinned is wrong. Man cannot judge God based on the suffering that he himself created. Instead, when it comes to God's God's love, God invites Christians to appreciate, to embrace, to view and be in awe of all that because of what he has done despite man's sin. So, you know, if you look in the beginning, you look there, uh, man sins, Adam sins, and uh, all of his relationships are messed up. His relationship to God is messed up. Uh, And so uh, he he tries to replace God, become like God himself by defining what is right and wrong for himself. So he rejects God. Man's relationship, right, his relationship with fellow man, Eve is messed up. He blames Eve. He sins against her. And then, of course, for himself, too, his mind is messed up, too. And then his relationship to the ground is messed up. God goes on, and the consequence of man's sin is judgment. And God says that it'll be difficult bearing fruit. Work then will become difficult. And so in light of all of those things, and then judgment coming, in light of all those things, how does God respond? He moves to rescue Adam and undo all of the effects of sin, to restore a relationship with God, to restore a relationship with man, and to restore a relationship with the ground. Where man messed up his relationship with God, 
God then moves to reconcile us back to him, right? We were hostile against him. We were running away from him. It's not like, you know, some people define sin as shooting the arrow and simply missing the target a little bit as if we're aiming in the right direction. But actually, sin is shooting the arrows at God because we're hostile towards him. 2 Corinthians 5.18, listen to this, what God does in response. God reconciles us to himself through Christ. 1 John says that God lavished his love upon us, that is sinners, in Christ and called us to be his children. I mean, what a, what a beautiful thing that is. If you want to look at a passage, you can look at Ezekiel chapter 16, where God pursues the one who is unlovely. And that's what God does in relation to our hostilities towards him. And he, look, he calls us to embrace that love, to view that love, to appreciate that love. Look at man's relationship with himself, fellow man. Right? He messed up his relationship with fellow man, with Eve and then others. God moves then in love and offers eternal life in Christ. Right, His sin earns himself death and judgment ultimately in hell, the Bible says. All of us, as we all have sinned. But yet God moves in love and offers eternal life in Christ. Think of John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. He's clear. He loves sinners and therefore offers eternal life in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Ephesians chapter 2. Think about relationships here. Ephesians chapter 2 says that where there once was enmity between man, God then brings unity in Jesus Christ, in his blood. And so we are able to forgive just as we have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. So there, right, the horizontal plane of relationships, at least within the church, their forgiveness is possible. And then where man messes up his relationship with the ground, God then moves to restore the world. So it speaks about the new heavens and the new earth where God's making all things new. That's a promise, one that we can bank on. One day will be fulfilled. So you see how that works there? It's when we see our sinfulness and rebellion against God that then we're able to look at his grace and his love and his care for us and know, yes, God is loving. He's delivering us from this own body of death, from this world of death. And as we look at the pages of scripture, there's no need to doubt God's loving care for us. And so, therefore, we are able to cast all of our cares and anxieties before him. It's wonderful. It's not just some anxieties, Peter says. Not just some. He says all, all of our anxieties. Again, we have Jesus Christ as our example in the garden. Luke twenty-two forty-two. This is what he prays. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So, friends, if we're going through, the, through any anxiety, through any suffering, all right, we can follow Jesus example here. He experienced some degree of anxieties, but was still without sin. But yet he is casting his cares upon God, knowing that God's mighty hand would come to deliver. We can look at the Psalms too. We look at Jesus. We can look at the Psalms. The Psalms point to Jesus. We see plenty of anxieties there. These Christians here would have experienced very real anxieties because of following Jesus Christ. They were beaten for the faith, possibly slandered, etc. But again, the God of all comfort would meet them with his mighty hand and open ears. We could spend so much time in application, but very briefly, friends, how is your prayer life as you cast your cares and anxieties before him? I'm afraid that if our vigor in prayer, don't think vigor as in something that's observable, I mean, more of a spiritual vigor. If our vigor in prayer were, were a reflection of God's character, I think we ourselves, unfortunately, would conclude that our God is weak and inattentive to his people. If you know, if you've had a good father, 
even sometimes good, or sometimes a good mother, <clears throat> or sometimes a good guardian, aren't you going to pick up the phone and call them for advice, for deliverance, for help? And the more often you talk to them and ask of them could be a reflection that you know your parent is strong and faithful and good. Well, the same with the Christian here, casting all of our anxieties upon him, knowing that he cares for us. We friends, we could talk about this so much more, but an effort to, ca- to learn to cast all your cares uh, upon the Lord, knowing that he cares for you. Let me encourage you to read and pray through the Psalms. I was talking with Gwen the other day, and Gwen mentioned that she reads the Psalms of the day. I'm not quite sure, Gwen, how you, <clears throat> you know, calculate the Psalms of the day, but the way that I was taught is that you go with the date, <clears throat> right? So today is what date? <clears throat> the 19th. So you can read Psalm 19, right? That's one of the Psalms of the day, and then you just continue adding 30. So if Psalm 19 is the, the Psalm of the day, you also have Psalm... 49, Psalm 79, Psalm what? 109, and then Psalm 39. And uh, those are the Psalms of the day. And then you can just continue to rotate through those things. And friends, those, the, reading the Psalms of the day have been, has been such spiritual nourishment for my own life. Because I see what the, they are wrestling with, the psalmists are wrestling with. And it, it lets me know how to pray. It lets me know, you know, is it good that I should flood my bed with tears and cast my anxieties and and even speak in such a way uh, where I can genuinely express my sorrows, genuinely express disappointments, but then yet still do it respectfully and ultimately trust in a God who loves and cares for me. It's a wonderful thing to do. Let me encourage you that the Psalms of the day, and especially if you're doing this, think always about how that Psalm is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Well, comfort is intended to be found in the power of God and his care. That point was point number one, long point. <clears throat> Obviously, we're dealing with God's character here. It's the basis of the rest of the passage, so it's long. Um, but Christians are not to sit back and do nothing, even though he, God's mighty hand is going to be wielded for them. This brings us to point number two, the Christian's resistance. <clears throat> the Christian's resistance. Uh, if you look there, verses eight and nine, I'll go ahead and read that. It says there, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Two imperatives, commands, start off this text here. Be sober-minded. He's used that uh, theme before, uh, thinking rightly in terms of the faith. And then he says, be watchful. These two terms are used oftentimes in light of the coming age that is the arrival of Jesus Christ. And naturally, Peter's talking about that, too. And this sober-minded, once again, as he mentioned it before in chapter 4, verse 7, there, be sober-minded in relation to the prayers that God's will would be done. And it's clear why the Christians were to be alert because of the threats of the devil. It says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he calls them to resist this devil. Resist this devil. It's, uh, it's interesting here that Peter doesn't tell the Christians to resist their human persecutors. That would go against Jesus' example. But here he says resist the devil. The devil seeks to destroy their faith. The devil here is called an adversary. Their opponent. And the word Satan uh, 
carries the same type of meaning. Satan is the accuser the, who, who stands accusing God's people almost to jeopardize, get them to, to rethink their justification, get them to think that they are not justified and so are condemned to hell. So that's the type of idea here in the name of the devil and Satan. And we know why the devil is called such a name. It's because he stands opposed to God and his people. Scripture shows that Satan is no joke compared to man. Scripture speaks of Satan being a spiritual being at war with angels. He is described as having a power over the earthly realm, that is, those who do not believe in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Ephesians describes him as the prince of the power of the air, whose spirit is at work in the disobedient. And then if you read the Gospels, we can see what he stands for, right? He's going to be with Jesus in the desert trying to derail Christ from going to the cross. And he wants him to fail in accomplishing God's plan of redemption. First Timothy 3, he says that uh, there it says that Satan is seen to lay traps for the righteous, drawing them into sin, getting them to fall. So this is serious stuff here. Which is why Christians need to watch out and then resist him. If they don't, they're going to be devoured What that means there is that they're going to give up the faith. They're not going to persevere until the end. Friends, in light of who Satan is, some Christians are tempted to fear the devil as if the devil, as if he if he were to find you will have some sort of power over the Christian. And so some people, they end up fearing in that particular way. If he finds you, he's going to have power over the Christian. But Christian, while the devil is strong compared to man, Thank God that God is even stronger. And so we are told, therefore, to resist him, not in our own strength. It doesn't say resist him in our own strength. It says there, look there in the verse, resist him firm in the faith. Now, the faith is not like a Miley Cyrus got to keep the faith in yourself. The faith here is faith in Christ. It has to do with Jesus. It has to do with what Christ accomplished and everything else that comes with it, living in his kingdom. I mean, this letter to suffering Christians is all about continuing to believe in Jesus and his power. He is the one with the mighty hand. That's belief in what God has accomplished. And the Bible says that Christ's death and his resurrection, in Christ's death and his resurrection, God disarmed the spiritual realm, including Satan. Colossians 2.15, this is what it says. He put them, that is a spiritual realm, angels, powers, demons, to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Because of Christ's work on the cross, the Christian's deliverance is definitive. So Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have, we possess it, the forgiveness of sins. So friends, if you fear the devil as if you think that he can have power over you, if he were to find you, um, here we need to come back to the truth that in Jesus Christ, Satan and the spiritual realm have been triumphed over. You, Christian, have been delivered. And now, Christian, you are equipped by Christ with the weapons of spiritual warfare, which is why it says in Ephesians chapter 6, Christian, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Friends, so do not think that you are somehow helpless in the face of a roaring lion that is the devil. We have Christ, the true lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So our danger, as one put it, is not that we are helpless before the devil. Our danger, rather, is that we would fail to resist. 
Instead of being firm in the faith, we neglect the truths of the faith. We slouch in the faith. We are inattentive to the faith. In relation to suffering in particular, we forget that Christ calls us to walk in his footsteps. And then, as 4.12 says, we will wrongly conclude that something unusual were happening to us. Peter tells us not to conclude that, but when we forget, that's what we think. Something is, suffering is unusual. What's going on? We forget that God uses trials and suffering and that our shifting under them can be used to root us all the more in God's grace and Christ's likeness as we latch on ultimately to Jesus Christ. We forget that though we may lose everything in this world, we possess a future eternal inheritance in Jesus Christ. And in forgetting the truths of the faith, these Christians and we too are in jeopardy of having our so-called faith snuffed out through persecution or frankly just plain laziness. So church, what are you doing to be firm in the faith? Resist the devil, he says, firm in the faith. What are you doing to be firm in the faith? Again, we can talk about this a lot, but, but are you girding up your souls and minds with the word of God? That's what we understand what the faith is. We're reminded of what Jesus has done. We remember what Christ has accomplished. We're reminded of who we are. We're reminded of how we are to walk. The strength that we can rely upon. God's mighty hand, even in the face of discouragement and suffering. So are you therefore girding up your souls and minds with the word? Or do you think somehow that you can resist him firm in the world? Firm in general secular leadership principles. Firm in success and managing money and so you give yourself to that firm in sports or athletic ability all these types of things we strive to be firm in but we forget that we are fighting we need to resist the devil who rages against christ i mean thank god that god's mighty hand in revelation is so clear who wins in the end already we know in the cross that satan has lost sin and death no longer have power over us but finally you know, we know that there say, uh, say God will throw Satan into the fiery pit and throw away the key forever. But until that day, we know that the loser, that is Satan, continues to rage on and all the more. Let me encourage you guys to help one another stay firm in the faith. How is it that you can do, do that? Let me encourage you guys to get together and read the word together and pray together. Confess your sin together. There can be this unhelpful thinking that, oh, the only time where we read the word is in small groups or something like that. No, what we want to do here, you know, last week we talked about how, you know, the priority should be on the local gathering. We also talked about how if you can't make it a small group, that's okay. You're still a faithful Christian. But I think where we should place greater emphasis on is in these informal gatherings, gatherings that can go on where believers are loving one another, encouraging one another to resist the devil firm in the faith. It's so encouraging to have other Christians partnering together, identifying with one another in the resistance of the devil. So, friends, if you don't have anybody to do that with, why don't you look around and ask somebody to do that with you? Now, if you ask somebody and you know that that person has like 13 jobs and is super busy and is caring for their dying mother, right? They might say no, and that's okay for people to say no. Uh, then you can go on and find another person that you know and love and trust someone who's a christian who has the same spirit of god living in you and you could get along fine you don't have to share the same hobbies uh you have the word of god the same spirit living in you and i trust there the lord will encourage you guys peter himself there in verse 9 look there he brings up the fact that christians are in this together together but he goes global he goes global here peter says resist him firm in the faith knowing knowing 
that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The world here means simply the Greco-Roman world. Of course, you know, again, Peter's writing from the center of it, Italy, Rome. And he's writing to the Christians who are on the eastern side of it, Turkey. And he's saying, look, Christians around this whole entire area, the Greco-Roman world, are experiencing the same suffering. And they, too, need to resist. And they, too, need to know that the blood of Jesus secures them. Thank God, though, that no matter how strong the devil is against mere man, he is no match again for Christ. The devil may lay out traps and temptations for Christ, but what are they to Christ? They are opportunities to prove his righteousness. The devil may, in some sense, be behind the persecution of Christ, but to Christ, man's hostilities are used to ensure the fulfillment of the plan of God. Where the devil launches persecutions against the church or against us, God uses the persecution to grow the church. As you see that in in the book of Acts there. Stephen is stoned, and what do all the Christians do there in Jerusalem? They spread out all over the known world, bringing the gospel with them. As one has said, the blood of the martyrs is a seed of the church. So the Christian, you Christian, if you are to resist, you must resist in the power of Christ who guaranteed, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And so in resisting Satan, we can have comfort in Christ who is stronger and in God who promises to preserve the Christian until the end. And this brings us to point number three. Point number three, if you're taking notes there, the suffering Christian's restoration. The suffering Christian's restoration. Verses 10 and 11 are the climax of the section. Look there. Faces in the text here. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory, be the dominion forever and ever. Given Satan prowls around, Christians are to enter into battle. Being sober-minded and watchful, they are to resist the devil by continuing to cling to the promises of Christ and by continuing to be Christ-like to those who persecute them. Of course, this is difficult. To resist is difficult. But here Peter reminds them of what will be. Once again, he's doing that throughout. What will be. And when he says there, after you've suffered a little while, he's not making light of your suffering. Right? He's not making light of your suffering. No, this is pastoral. He cares for you. Where is the emphasis here? Where's, where does the, the weight lie as he writes here? The emphasis is on the weight of eternal glory in Christ. That's what's being compared here to this, this little, this, this momentary affliction compared to the weight of eternal glory. Second Corinthians four seventeen. for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So you see here what Peter wants your eyes to be on. If you're suffering as a Christian, it is not on the ground level. It's not on the ground, but on glory. It's not on your battle against Satan, but your deliverance in the Savior. This is why Peter ends the letter the same way he started. is helping us look to Christ who will indeed come again. It is so true that we are to resist Satan. Sober-minded, be alert, resist him in the power that God supplies. But Jesus Christ will deliver us from the devourer. God will deliver us. If you look there, you see all these wonderful words that God's going to do. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, establish. I don't think there's any need to really talk about all the distinctions of these particular words. The point is clear. He's going to do all of these things. He's going to root us firm in his grace. If you look at verse 10, right? 
We're, we're so clear on who wins at the end of the day. Resist Satan, serious guy. We're so clear here on who wins. And Peter points readers to God not once, not twice, but three times to God. First, he says, uh, the God of all grace. It's almost as if it were a title in Greek. The God of all grace. Second, he explains, again, as if it were a title. He who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So his grace is further explained by him who has called you. So when he calls there, you should think that this is God entering into a relationship with those whom he calls. This is God who establishes a saving relationship with someone. That's what it means here when it talks about a call. This call is tied to his grace in eternity past. So he says there, look, this God of all grace, this God who has called you, he is going to do this. Peter says, referring to God for the third time, he will himself establish you, suffering Christian. God establishes Christians in the grace that God himself possesses. What is his mighty hand going to be wielded for? Is it going to be against you? No, it's going to be wielded for you as God establishes Christians in the grace that God himself possesses. Regardless of what happens on earth, whether you suffer for the faith or not, there is eternal security in the mighty hand of God. Because, once again, God who calls us by his grace into his grace secures us by his grace. What great hope for the suffering Christian, isn't it? Who may have doubted whether or not God loves you. You who may wonder just how powerful God is in light of being beaten for Christ and suffering. Peter here gives us a helpful shove under the mighty hand of God and his eternal and unchangeable purposes of his grace. Eternal glory. That is salvation in Jesus Christ. That's what he means there when he talks about eternal glory. So Christian, yes, suffering is difficult. As some of you guys know. Resisting the devil is difficult. But even though, friends, your earthly situation, your earthly future may be uncertain, you need not doubt God's future provision. Why is that? Because his future provision is not dependent on your circumstances or how you ultimately navigate them. But your future provision is based on his eternal and unchangeable character, his eternal and unchangeable purpose of grace for you. Right. This is a calling. This is grace from eternity past. He says there in chapter in chapter one, that is that uh, this grace is going to come in the future when God's grace arrives. It says the same thing in chapter two. Christians oftentimes get confused and ultimately sometimes they get devoured. They doubt his care, his provision for them based on the trials that they go through. You know, they look at the first section of our text. They look at verses five and six and they think or six and seven. They think, yeah, great. God loves me. God is powerful. And then practically, when they get to the second section, point number two, when they get to resist the devil, be sober minded, then, then they back off and they think, oh, like this is not for me. I didn't know this is what it came with. When, it, when I signed up to be a Christian. So then the question is, well, what would have helped resist the devil, resist temptation, stand firm in the faith? It's by grounding the entire Christian life on God's grace given to sinners because of his love for them. Grace from eternity past in election, the Bible says. This is what Ephesians chapter 1 says. Grace for the present as God upholds us and continues to sustain us and then grace for the future that will come at the arrival of Jesus Christ. 
This is what's supposed to sail the Christian throughout his life. Though it might be difficult, though Christ the King will knock on the door and will call some of us to follow in his footsteps, it is his grace that is to move us and it is his mighty hand that is to protect us. Thus, he who called you in grace has destined you for an eternity of it. When you think about the father who subjected his son to suffering, and you think about the son who subjected himself to the father's will by choice for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Is God the father going to let any one of his son's wounds go to waste? He sees the son's wounds. He sees the marks on his head through the crown of glory. He sees the whippings on his back. He sees his pierced side. He sees his suffocated body. He sees his nail-pierced hands. Grace for you. And not one of those scars, not one of those sufferings is he going to let go to waste. But what Christ, when Christ dies on the cross, he accomplishes salvation for all who would repent and believe. And so what Christ has done on the cross definitively almost 2,000 years ago secures grace for your future, Christian. As we know that when Christ comes, his grace will come with him. Romans 8 says, offering security. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I am sure, he goes on to say, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so you have this eruption of praise in verse 11 of chapter 5. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Nero might persecute. Masters might slander. Friends might betray. Families might turn their backs. But to him be the dominion forever and ever. Christians, as you suffer, know that there is comfort in Jesus Christ. As you resist the devil, <clears throat> know that God himself will indeed establish you. It is true that God has called Christians to walk in his footsteps. But an even greater calling is the calling into the grace of salvation that brings forgiveness of sins, reconciliation for the sinner. I have not spoken to the non-Christian yet. You've endured an hour already. Let me speak to you now. If you are visiting with us and you, know, you do not know Jesus... You ought to be able to turn around to your neighbors even and even see your own heart that you do not rule yourself well. Your dominion doesn't work out very well. And that's not an insult. I mean, everybody in the world can identify this, whether you are non-Christian or a Christian. And this world, once again, is a sinking ship. And the Lord in his grace brings us to our end to see that this ship is, that's going down is not worth latching ourselves to. And so why does he send Jesus? It's because he loves us, right? Because God loved a sinful world, he therefore sent Jesus Christ that everybody who repents and believes would have eternal life. And so he sends Jesus Christ, his eternal son, to take on flesh, to live a perfect life that we could not, even though that is what God demanded. But even though we could not, God sent his son into the world to take on flesh for us. He dies on the cross for our, in our place, bearing the wrath that we deserved. 
He bears the punishment that we deserve. So our relationship with God to be, can be worked out and reconciled. We can be adopted into his family. There'd be no more wrath. There would be only forgiveness, only loving kindness through the perfect father, through his son, to his people. Three days later, he gets up from the dead, showing all that payment has been made and there is no judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. This is the hope that we have, friends. If you are going through any suffering, you're meant to see that this shinking sip is going down and you are to latch on to Jesus Christ. Friends, this hope of salvation is for you if you would repent of your sins and believe. Let's pray together.